So the first thing we said is look at the context. So we did this last week. Um, I'll, I'll briefly cover it again. It's Matthew 24, verses 1 through 3 is the question that Jesus is answering. And the, Jesus, and the question that they asked Jesus is the disciples are sitting there and they ask Jesus um, privately. They ask him, tell us, when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Now, what they were talking about, it says there in verse 1, Jesus came from the temple and was going with his disciples. And he pointed out to them the buildings and he said, not one stone here will be left and another which will not be torn down. And they ask him, well, when is that going to happen? And what will be the end of the age? Okay, so that's the question that Jesus is answering. So that's the immediate context. And then we looked at some places where these phrases that are in Matthew 24 show up in other places of Scripture. The first one we looked at was Isaiah 13. And then there were some questions that came up about Isaiah 13 from people in the class. So let's go back to Isaiah 13. We're going to look at that again. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 13. The best thing to do would be to read the whole chapter, but um, we did cover this last week, and I don't really want to take the time right now to go through the whole chapter, but let's look at some things out of this. Last week we covered this, and we looked at it, and it says, verse 1 of Isaiah 13 says, The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. So right away we know what's this about. Babylon, okay? And then... Later on, you see verse 17, and it says, Behold, I'm going to stir up the Medes against them. And we know the Medes conquered Babylon, right? So we know this is about historical Babylon. Verse 19, And Babylon, the beauty of the kingdoms, the glory of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Again, Babylon. So here we have at the beginning of the chapter saying this is about Babylon, and here towards the end of the chapter there's a few more verses that are very clear this is about ancient Babylon. So we should expect naturally in Scripture that everything in between of those is also about ancient Babylon. Okay? Does that make sense? I realize some commentators don't say that. But what I want you to do is look and see if the context shows that this is about Babylon or is this about something else. The context here is verse 1 says Babylon, and at the end it says Babylon. So we should naturally expect everything between those two to be about Babylon. So I was looking at one commentator because I wanted to see what they say and see if there was anything in the text. Um, And this came from a couple different people who were concerned because they saw commentators saying that some verses are about Babylon, some verses about the future. So one commentator I looked up said um, that... They thought verses 1 through 5 were about the ancient city of Babylon, but 6 and 7 was about the future. Then 8 was about ancient Babylon, 9 was about the future, 11 12 were through ancient Babylon, 13 about the future, 14 about ancient Babylon, and on and on and on it goes. How are they doing that? Where are they coming up with the justification for saying that one verse can be about something and the very next verse about something else? Do you know, does Scripture do that? Is that common in Scripture? No, it's not. We should expect from the context, right? Don't forget our hermeneutical principles, right? We should expect from the context that if it says, this is about Babylon, and then it says, this is about Babylon at the end, then everything there in the middle should be about ancient Babylon, okay? Now, if you want to say, 
Some people might come to this and say, well, it has dual meaning. It's about ancient Babylon, yes, but it's also about the future. If you want to say that, I say, okay. That you can, I can see. But to pick and choose some verses about, being, about ancient Babylon and some not about ancient Babylon, I don't see any justification for that in the text. Does that make sense? Okay, so then we know that the verses in here that have the phrases we're looking at were written about ancient Babylon. I'm speaking about, let's start at verse 9 here. It says, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. You recognize that phrase, right? That's why one reason why I have you put Matthew 24 on that sheet, because you can read that, and it's verbatim, right from Isaiah 13 to what we're reading in Matthew 24, right? Isaiah states, The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. And Matthew declares, The sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. It's identical, right? But here we have in Isaiah 13 that those phrases are used about the ancient city of Babylon something that happened in the past. Okay? So then we looked at Isaiah 34. I won't go back there again. I will just quickly go over it. But it said, um, Isaiah 34, verse 4, And all the host of heaven will wear away, and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. And then the very next verse says, Behold, it shall descend for judgment upon Edom. And the next verse says, and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. So we have this phrase, the host of heaven will wear away and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll, being written about the judgment on Edom, the nation of Edom. That's on Isaiah 34. And then Joel 2 is where we left off. We read Joel 2, and Joel 2 says, blow a trumpet in Zion, and immediately Dan knows right away, he says, well, this is about Israel. It says in Zion. And then the next line says, let all the inhabitants of the land, right, the land of Israel, tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. This is Joel 2. But then in verse 10, talking about what's going to happen to the land of Israel, it says, before them the earthquakes, the heavens tremble, and the sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. So again, we have these phrases used about something that happened in the past to the nation of Israel. Okay, And what was happening to the nation of Israel? Verse, the next verse, verse 11. The Lord utters his voice before his army. His camp is indeed very great. For mighty is one who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Okay. Now we're on to the next verse I want to look at, and that's Amos 8. If your Bibles turn to Amos 8. Who knows what the book of Amos is about? The great majority of the book of Amos is about one thing. Does anybody know what it is? Yeah, the, and what's happening to the northern kingdom? Yes, they're being conquered, right? This is about the, God's judgment on Israel, right? This is God's judgment on Israel, the great majority of the book of Amos. And I think it starts in chapter 2 and runs through the end of the book. All about Israel and what is going to happen 
to the nation of Israel. Okay? And so, um, let's see. Uh, Dan, do you have Amos 8, verses 1 through 3? Can you read those? Okay, now if you look in verse 9 of Amos 8, he just told you that this is about Israel. What's going to happen to them? Talking about the destruction of Israel, or judgment coming on the nation of Israel. And verse 9 says, It will come upon about in that day, declares the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in the broad daylight. So here we have very similar phrase again, being described about what was going to happen to the nation of Israel, something that happened in the past. Okay? And that was the destruction of Israel in 722 B.C. The majority of the book of Amos is about the destruction of Israel, something that happened in the past. Okay? Ezekiel 32. Go to Ezekiel chapter 32. We're going to read some of that too. Ezekiel chapter 32. Cliff Middleton, do you have that? Verses 1 through 8. Read verses 1 through 8 for us, please. So, Ezekiel 32, what's this chapter about? Or who is it about? Egypt, right? Son of man, take up a lamentation over Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say to him, right? And then Cliff read for us that graphic language of what was going to happen to Egypt. 
Again, we have it again. The same language being used to describe something that happened to a nation in the past. And in verse 7 we have, And when I extinguish you, I will cover the heavens and darken their stars, and I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon will not give its light. And the shining lights in the heavens I will darken over you and will set darkness on your land. So here we have very similar phrases again being used about the nation of Egypt. And notice what happens. That was through verse 8. But in verse 12 we have again, By the swords of the mighty ones I will cause your hordes to fall. All of them are tyrants of the nations. And they will devastate the pride of Egypt. And all its hordes will be destroyed. So here we have verse 1 of Ezekiel 32 saying this is about Egypt. And then we have through verse 11. In verse 11, it's also saying this is about Egypt. So we should expect this whole passage to be about Egypt, right? Because that's the context. God's giving you bookends, right? Saying this is about Egypt. Just to make sure you understand what it's about, he says it and then he says this was about Egypt. He says it twice. The beginning of the passage and at the end. He's telling you it's about Egypt, right? So we know that these verses in between are about Egypt. But here we have our phrases being used again that we see in Matthew 24. Okay? So now the question. What is Isaiah 13, Isaiah 34, Joel 2, Amos 8, and Ezekiel 32 have in common? Those are the ones we read. What was going on in those chapters? What were those chapters about? All of them uses those phrases we're looking at, right? We see the phrases from Matthew 24 being used in all those chapters. So the question is, is what were those chapters all about? What did they have in common? Destruction of a nation. These chapters are all about destruction of a nation. So when we come to Matthew 24, what should we expect Matthew 24 that's using the same language to be about? Not rocket science, right? The destruction of a nation. This is, it's clear. And you look back at the Old Testament and you see how clear it really is. Now, it's, it's interesting because you have Matthew 24 right in front of you. And a lot of people read this and they expect this to be about something that's going to happen yet future to us. But they're making assumptions about what these phrases mean. And if you try to take them literally, it does appear that this this has never happened before. In fact, I've heard that many times. Say, so this is about the future. And they read it and they say, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky. And they go, oh, that's never happened before. The stars have never fallen from the sky. Well, I'll hold on. Wait a minute. In Scripture, it does say it's happened quite a few times that we just read. We read, how many passages? Five? Where we saw that God was describing this stuff happening to a nation in the past which tells us we can't take these verses literally. We can't literally expect the sun to be darkened and the moon to not give its light and the stars falling from the sky, right? So what does this mean exactly? Well, the best that I can make sense of it, looking at the context, is what God is saying here is for these nations, the lights went out. And if I use that terminology, which is very similar to that Old Testament terminology, you actually understand what that means. If I say, for these nations, the lights went out, you know what I mean. You know that the nation ceased to exist. They were destroyed. They were wiped out. Right? Does that make sense now? How these phrases are being used to describe the destruction of a nation. They're not meant to be taken word for word, literally, any more than 
a cakewalk or saying about a nation the lights went out. It's simply figurative language from the Old Testament describing the prophecy of a nation that's about to be destroyed. Does that make sense? Back to where we were. So now remember the context of Matthew 24. Okay? Jesus was explaining to the disciples when the temple would be destroyed. Remember, they asked, he said, not one stone of the temple would be left on another. And they said, when will these things happen? And when will be the end of the age? And that's exactly what Jesus is describing here, right? It makes sense. It fits together. When they're asking, when will the temple be destroyed? And he gives this figurative language. They knew what it meant. And it makes sense and it fits together. Now, I remember last week, I, uh, or was it the last time I taught, I was talking to some of you after, and I said, we have to look at the context. Remember the context. And I think it was Cliff who said, yes, in Matthew 23, you know, you go back to the chapter, and it, it's part of the context. So let's do that quickly. Let's look at how that also fits with Matthew 23, and they all fit together. What's Matthew 23 about? Right before our passage, in Matthew 23, what is that chapter about? Say that again, Jonah. Condemnation of the religious leaders. Correct. Right? It was woes. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, over and over and over again. Right? I thought I put it in my notes here. Yeah, Matthew 23, let's look at verses 32 through 36. Matthew 23, 32 through 36. Uh, Ethan, you have that? So what's Jesus telling you here? Does this sound familiar? Does this fit in the context of what we were discussing in Matthew 24? Yeah, right? It all fits together. It fits together really well. When you look at Matthew 23 and what Jesus is telling you, he's saying, look, the scribes and the Pharisees, they failed to keep my law. And not only that, they're doing all these wicked things. And over and over and over, he says, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. And then he says... Upon you will come, will, will fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah. He says, you murdered the temple and the altar. You murdered between the temple and the altar. And he says, this is going to happen to who? Who is judgment coming on here in Matthew 23? This generation. The people he was talking to. Right? And then we get to Matthew 24. And, G- and the disciples asked Jesus, 
When is the temple going to be destroyed? It all fits, right? It fits perfectly in the context. So we know here by looking at the context, in Matthew 24, what's it about? It's about the destruction of a nation. Now we know particularly it's about the destruction of Israel for their wickedness. Matthew 24, verse 30, there's some other things in here that I want you to look at too that also make sense if they're clarified a little bit. Matthew 24, verse 30 states, this is the way the NAS puts it, and then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the tribes of the land will mourn. It actually says the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with great power and glory. There's two things that are a little confusing in there, and so I looked it up. Um, the first is, then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And it's kind of interesting. Sometimes you run into things where you wonder if the translators had other notions in mind when they were translating these things. But they actually confused the Greek word order there. Why they switched it, I'm not exactly sure. But if you look at the right Greek word order there, it says, then will appear... Here, I wrote it down here. Hold on. Make sure I get it right. Then will appear a sign the Son of Man is in heaven. A little different than the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. So it's saying there that the sign is, there's a sign showing that the Son of Man is in heaven, not a sign from the Son of Man in heaven. Does that make sense? So the word order is a little confused there. So what it's saying is, is a sign will come showing you that the Son of Man is in heaven. It's, this is being proof that the Son of Man has, is in heaven and reigning. Not the sign is from the Son of Man in heaven. Does that make sense? It's a little tricky. <laughs> I, I looked it up, and that's the sense that I could make out of it, and I looked up some commentators. One was, uh, I wrote it down here in my notes. If I can find it, I can tell you who it was that said it. Alfred Marshall. It was in the inner... Interlinearity, Greek, English, New Testament. That's where I got that from. Interlinear, Greek, English, New Testament. Second edition. Huh? Say that again. Right. Either way, it... I suppose it's possible. But either way, I mean, that's how it can be taken, even if the way the, the NAS take, you know, if you read even the way the NAS translates it, it can be taken either way. But at least when I looked it up, the Greek that I looked at, made it, made it, 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 it looked like it was the sign. The sign was showing that the Son of Man was in heaven. The sign was the proof that the Son of Man was in heaven. And then in Matthew 24, verse 30, the other thing I wanted to look at was, um, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Does anybody have an NIV? Is anybody reading from the NIV? <laughs> that phrase, in the NIV they put a note next to, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. I think it's the way the NIV puts it, or maybe the tribes of the world. 
Yeah, verse 30 where it says, in all the tribes of the land. In the NIV that I have, there's a footnote that says, Does yours have a footnote next to all tribes of the all tribes of the earth? In the NIV you have? The footnote says Tribes of the Land. Right. And the word there used for uh, earth in the NES or I mean the Greek word can mean earth or land. And the Darby translation also translates that land. Now let me read it again and see if you can See the difference of how it sounds. Then all the tribes of the earth, how it sounds different than all the tribes of the land. If I told you tribes of the land, what would you think of? Israel. Right? Makes sense. That this should be tribes of the land. And there's a footnote in the NIV even that says this is literally translated as tribes of the land. Right? The tribes of the land refers to Israel. So here we have Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the tribes of the land will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with great power and glory. It fits, right? It all fits together. And then Matthew 24, we stopped in verse 31. Here, let's read the rest of it. Let's read through... In Matthew 24, we stopped at verse 31. Let's read through verse 36. So if you got your Bibles here, I didn't put it in the notes. I'm going to look it up here on my phone. I didn't put it in the notes either, in my notes either. Okay, does somebody have that? Verses 32 through 36. Go ahead, Quentin. So here we have again, does this sound familiar, this phrase? This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Where did we read that before? Chapter 23. Shows again right here. Now I realize some commentators want to make this say the word generation there means something other than generation. But it's interesting that the same ones who say that, look in Matthew 23 where the same phrase is used. This will happen to this generation and there they say Oh, that's about the generation. And then you get here and you get this generation again. They go, oh, no, that's not about this generation. <laughs> there's, no, there's no justification for that. The word there means, for generation, means generation. I've looked and I've looked. I can't find any justification for making it say anything other than this generation. But here in the context, it fits, right? It fits in the context. The people Jesus was talking about, It was going to happen to them. Judgment was coming upon the nation of Israel, right? So what is Matthew 24, at least through verse 35 that we just read, what's it about? It's about the destruction of the nation of Israel, right? After we look at this and we just look at all these verses, it becomes pretty clear. Now, I talked to Aaron DeLine about this 
years ago, you know, now is two or three years ago before we started this. And I, if I remember right, we talked about this, and he draws, I think it's at verse 36, and he sees the but there. And he says, sees that as a changing of topic, and that after that but, things go on to the future. So I'm not going to tackle that, even though my tendency is to say from ther- verse 36 onward is still about the destruction of Israel. Um, but I can see that, because there's a but there. <laughs> and it's saying, okay, these things are going to happen, but something else, and that was Aaron's take, I say, okay. (laughs) Right. So, but of that day and hour, no one knows. So to me, that appears like it's still about the destruction of Israel in AD 70. Right, exactly. (laughs) What didn't happen? I would argue that that was true about AD 70. That in AD 70, nothing had happened like that before and nothing has happened like that since. And I take that, the reason I say that is, one, because God's Word says so. And it's clear from the context that this is about AD 70. And if you read historical documents about what was happening in AD 70, it seems to make sense. Not only that, but you're talking about the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Israel, in a way where they were wiped out, never to be joined again in the same way that they were. And remember the question at the beginning, what will be the sign of this happening when they were talking about the temple? They said, what will be the sign of this happening and the end of the age? Cliff Montreux mentioned to me, they said he heard commentators saying that was two different questions. But if you think about it, I think that's the same question. What will be the sign of this happening, being the temple being destroyed and the edge of the end of the age? Isn't the temple being destroyed and Israel being completely wiped out the end of an age? So, yes, clearly that's the end of an age that was never to be restored again as far as a national state of Israel that was God's people. Yeah. Why would they ask about the end of the age when, they were, when the context was about the temple? Right. So my guess is, well, it, 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 that fits with what they were being told in Matthew 23, right? In Matthew 23, he's talking about more woes and more destruction coming on Israel. So maybe there was something in that whole discourse that made them think um, that that was the end of the age was coming. Or it could be that to the disciples, where the temple was a you know, vital part of worship, where God commanded all these things to happen at the temple, that to their thinking, if the temple is being destroyed, to them that is the end of an age, right? I mean, to me that makes sense from Jewish thinking. If you're a Jew and everything you do is, for worship is centered around the temple, and sacrifices, and Jesus comes and says, it's going to be destroyed. It seems to me that 
asking, when's the end of that age? Or, you know, this is the end of an age. But that's a valid question. What? Go ahead, Cliff. Right. Okay. My understanding of that is that for destruction and judgment of God is called a coming of the Lord, right? A day of the Lord. So there's a sense where the coming of the Lord or the, a, a day of judgment is a, a sense in a coming of the Lord. It's not the second coming, but a coming of the Lord in judgment. And we saw that in our passages that we read, that there'll be a day of the Lord or a coming of the Lord, and that's describing judgment. I think it's clear when they ask that question, Cliff, it seems to me it's clear that by that time they know judgment is coming upon the nation of Israel based on what Jesus said in Matthew 23 and what he just said in the beginning of Matthew 24. That it's clear now they understand Israel is going to be judged. So if they understand judgment is coming to Israel, they know the thinking that that's a coming of the Lord, not the second coming. It is his coming, right? I mean, he's, he's coming in judgment. He's the one. God, they, know to, you know, they know that judgment comes from God, right? So it is God coming. Anything else? Is this making sense? Hopefully. There are difficulties. Right. Okay, so here, Cliff, you're, you're always one step ahead of me. Why is that? That's the next thing in my notes. <laughs> That's right. Exactly right, Dale. So here, let's look at the next part that Cliff just brought up. Next thing in my notes, actually. Okay, verse verse 30, I think we covered pretty well. The tribes of the land will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with great power and glory. We know that's about the judgment of Israel. That's about the judgment of the nation. Okay, well, what about the next verse? Verse 31. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather to together his elect from the wind, from one end of the sky to the other. The other thing we didn't see here, I didn't cover, was in verse 30, the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with great power and glory. Okay, So here's the next phrase, the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky. So I didn't cover that yet, actually. So let's cover that now. So what's that phrase mean? What does it mean, the Son of Man coming on the clouds? Okay? We see this again, if you want to look at this briefly here. I'm running out of time. Matthew 26. Let's go there. Matthew 26, verses 59 through 66. Matthew 26. So this is the phrase we're looking at now, the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky. That's the phrase we're going to look at now. What does that mean exactly? What does it mean when it says the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky? 
And we see that phrase again here in Matthew 26. Uh, Dale, you got it? 59 through 66? Read through, through Matthew 26, 59 through 66. So here's an interesting thing there. As soon as Jesus says, you're going to see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven, they, the, the first response is, he deserves death. And you might go, how did they get that from that phrase? Well, obviously that phrase means something to them more than the literal, more than it means to us. That they'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven, and they're going... He's blasphemed. He deserves death. Well, why? So what do we do if we want to know what that phrase means? Let's look it up. Now this, unlike the last phrases where we looked at where it was judgment and very graphic, gory detail about judgment that was coming out of the nations, these verses are really great. So I'm actually quite excited about coming to this part because we get to read some really great passages of Scripture that use this same phrase. The first one, uh, Psalm 68 if you want to go there, Psalm 68, 1 through 4. And if I remember right, this is from the NIV, what I have in my notes here. Sometimes with Old Testament stuff, sometimes I like the NIV. Anyway, Psalm 68, May God arise, may his enemies be scattered, may his foes flee before him. May you blow them away like smoke, as wax melts before the fire. May the wicked perish before God. May the righteous be glad and rejoice before God. And may they be happy and joyful. Sing to God. Sing in praise of His name. Extol Him who rides on the clouds. Rejoice before Him. His name is the Lord. The NIV writes, Sing to Him, sing praises of His name, Him who rides on the clouds. Okay. Um, let's go to Psalm 97. Psalm 97, verses 1 through 6. Wade, do you have that?
here's Psalm 97, verse 2. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Right? Okay. Go to Psalm 104. Go ahead. What was... Hold on. New King James is what you were reading, Wade? What do you have, Lisa? NES. I have the NES. The Lord reigns. May the earth rejoice. May the many islands be joyful. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. What did yours say, Wade, there for verse 2? Okay. That, that verse 2 is identical in the NAS. It's exact. The two translations. Okay. By Psalm... Psalm 104. Psalm 104, verses 1 through 3. Psalm 104, verses 1 through 3. Al, do you have that? He makes the clouds his chariot, and he walks upon the wings of the wind. Go to Daniel 7. I don't mind taking some time looking at these because these are great passages about God. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. Dan, do you have that? Okay, verse 13, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. Where does that, does that phrase sound familiar to you? It should. Right, right, out of, right out of Matthew 24. With the clouds of heaven, one like the son of man was coming. I like Dan's translation had it the other way, so actually it was in the same order as Matthew 24 was in. Um, my NES has it switched around. I don't know that it makes any difference. Um, but it's with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. What is Psalm 104, Psalm 68, Psalm 97, and Daniel 7 all have in common? What's the common theme here of these, of these passages? Psalm 
Psalm 104, he lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He walks upon the wind. What's the general theme of these verses? Um, Psalm 60, Psalm 97. The Lord reigns. May the earth rejoice. May the many islands be joyful. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and judgment are the foundation of his throne. Talking about the glory of God, right? He's king of kings and lord of lords, right? Daniel 7. Here we have the same phrase being used in Matthew 24. And think about what this phrase is saying. It says this phrase, the phrase that we have. Then you'll see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. Then it says, He came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Starting to make sense? Putting some pieces together here? So what was Jesus saying when he says, You will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven? What was he saying about himself? It's pretty clear now after looking at these, He's saying he is God. Not only is he saying he's God, but he's saying he has dominion and power and authority over everything. And to him will be a giving a kingdom for him to rule over. Right out of Daniel 7, right? And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion and everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. This is what Jesus is claiming here, right? Now you see why, as soon as the Jews heard that, they said, he deserves death. Right? You get a different feel here for these phrases, right? As soon as you look them up in the Old Testament, and you look at their context and the way they were used in Old Testament literature, they're using them the same way in the New Testament. You just... It really helps to take the time to go back, look these things up, and the meaning pops right out at you. We're about out of time. I'm going to stop here. Um, Are there any more questions? I really hope this is helpful. I know we've come from a lot of different backgrounds theologically, and a lot of people have been taught different things about a lot of these things. But I picked this one because to me this one seems pretty clear. You start to look these phrases up in the Old Testament. And the meaning from the Old Testament comes right out. You can see what these phrases meant. What was their purpose? How, were they, how they were being used in the Old Testament. And they're using them exactly the same way in the New Testament. Make sense? Okay. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for making it so clear. Thank you for helping us understand it. Thank you for your Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth that comes alongside us and helps us along as we go. May your Spirit work in us and teach us your truth. May we understand it new every day. May your word be new every morning to us. May your word be a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. Like Jesus prayed in John 17, 17, Lord, sanctify us in your truth. Help us to understand your truth. Help us to understand your word. Help us to gain new understandings that we didn't have before each and every day. May your word be a joy to us and a comfort 
Thank you, Lord, for giving us your word. And thank you for being here with us. Thank you for the opportunity to come together and worship you, the ancient of, ancient of days. To you has been given dominion and power and authority over all nations, and you rule them with your mighty hand. Praise be to God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.